0: The following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show to find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Well, we have a few hardy travellers who have come <laughs> and made it through all of that. Uh, thank you all. I've had a total computer meltdown and a bunch of other things going on. And uh, I'm very glad that you could make it. Uh, and thank you, Monica, for bearing with us and starting a bit late. Uh, I'm Scotty Foster. This is a, a meetup of co Co-Canberra. CoCanberra is a group which is committed to building a new economy in Canberra. And we also double up with these meetings with the New Economy Network of Australia, Canberra and Region Hub. Tonight, we're joined by Monica Considon from the Coco Cabago group uh, down at Cabago, um, And I'm just going to hand over to you, Monica. Um, can you introduce yourself and, and what Coco Cabago is up to?
1: Well, briefly, we are... Uh... We've been meeting about four or five times in the last 12 months. We put an open invitation out to anybody in Cabago and the general area who was interested in co-housing, co-farming or cooperative farms. What happened was a whole lot of people turned up, sort of 40, 50. One group that came through that we hadn't really factored in was people doing farm shares. So that's when there's one owner. Of land, But there's other people who are going to live on that land and various arrangements in terms of return um, for rent being labour. So helping run the farm or maybe just living there, it depends. And after the fires, there were a lot of people who had lost property, lost uh, dwelling. And so for various reasons, they were open to people sharing that land or using that land differently. Often it was somebody maybe who was elderly and were somewhat intimidated by going back onto the land solo, or there was a whole lot of work to do, or they could see a need that others uh, needed a roof over their heads because rental properties are not easily available at the moment. Um, Some of it's COVID affected where uh, people from the the bigger cities are coming in, uh, renting property as their COVID office, work from home office, and that has sucked up quite a bit of the what would ordinarily be there as rentals. Um, so, yeah, we've been evolving a way that people can uh, get co-owners agreements or farm sharing agreements up and running. So we're not trying to replace lawyers. Um, we, we don't have the skill set to do that. Uh, we're not trying to monetize it in any way. But we're looking at things like um. Just different ways that people can draw out an agreement that they can, for themselves, that they can then bring to a lawyer or or then write up properly. And it's both to protect the owner um, or owners or people getting into an arrangement, as well as in particular people who are, and I've done it myself, who are willing to uh, be a farm manager for a period of time, but then realize that they have no security, for instance, and that there there isn't a great incentive to invest in the land. If you were, say, being a market gardener for a couple of years, and you were going to do some work on that land, if you don't have security around it, then you're not going to put a lot of effort in. We've uh, currently, just in the last few days, Uh, have put out a um, co-ownership process so a way to have that conversation and we've got about uh, 20 people that are kind of our brains trust who've done it before or have um, uh, entered into uh, they're either involved in co-living communities and have some knowledge about non-violent communication and things like that uh, which we're gradually hoping to build up as uh, social capital so that as different variations of this evolve, we can share them back with the interested community. So that's Coco.
0: Is the farming thing the only thing that you guys are up to or are you considering more stuff?
1: Farming is the primary driver because we're in a rural area. So the people that are here are quite interested in farming, but not necessarily large scale. Um, So five acre blocks are in the mix. But there's a real need for um, co-housing as well, which is why the word coco evolved because people were looking at co-farming, but the co-housing thing came into it and then collaborative farming and community and all of that. So we got sick of the big, long co-this, co-that, co-the other thing and just went co-co is a lot easier and we know what we mean. <laughs>
0: That's right, it is. You say there's a bunch of people interested who've been, who've already done this sort of thing. Can you run through some of those for us and
1: just sort of. Yeah. So, what we've tried to do to ground what we're talking about when we gather is we invite case studies, so people who have done it before. um, And it's a mixed bag of things. It's people who did it in the 70s and had a. Um, you know, a, a community title. Um, it's people who've done it more recently, but they've put a conservation order on that land and nobody lives on it. So there might be one dwelling on the land, um, but it's a kind of a timeshare where the ethos is very much about um, taking the land away from agriculture and bringing it um, back to nature. And then there's other ones that have a farming intent, um, albeit not necessarily making a living from it, but a supplementary living from it. And there may be multiple co-farmers on that land. We get those guys to come in, talk about their story, why they've done it, how they're doing it. And it's amazing how open people are prepared to be about their arrangements and hang around afterwards, ask, answering questions. And you know, essentially uh, they're quite interested in what other people are trying to do as well and learning from that. One of the big outcomes is the people who have presented as case studies have realized that there's maybe gaps in their agreement. Um, for instance, the people that have done it in the 70s and the 80s realizing they haven't really thought through succession. They only thought about themselves they haven't thought about the next generation and how the land might be passed on and what that might look like. So that's quite interesting um, that they're learning whilst helping others.
0: I guess one of the things that those sort of groups, uh, G'day Keith. Keith is helping Co Canberra's project on a community owned farming cooperative. So I'll just give him a very quick rundown on where we're up to. So Monica and the gang have got a whole bunch of people together who've done co-ownership stuff together and they've um, put the Brains Trust into play and we just started talking about some of the things they've been learning from that Brains Trust. Um, succession was one and I'm sure that ownership is, is another one because the co-ownership sort of ideas are still quite new and novel and, uh, yeah, have you found anything in that space? It's uh, interesting.
1: Well, for us, and it's associated with the tool library. So after the fires, um, there was also a a tool library set up. um, And it's just, I'm sure you guys have a similar sort of cultural challenge. On a farm, people like to have one of everything and have their own tools. Um, So really, we're, now that we're a year old, um, we are... Challenging the idea that you need to have one of everything, every tool. Sharing is challenging. Um, people are worried that they're going to hand back a tool, and it's not in the or in the state that the the, the person who was um, the, the tool library expected. So similarly with land and and dwelling stuff, culturally we. We don't seem to have developed that skill set that we understand how to share and whether it's communication or the financial side of it or the sharing of workload. It's all very new and people are either jumping into it completely naive about the, the, the communication required or they're just totally scared of it and don't want to enter into it, but we feel that through collaboration, whether it's sharing tools or sharing land, that there's a huge number of positives. So we're all very keen to try and work through the hurdles.
0: Yeah, and I guess in, in the, a lot of the co-op stuff that I've, I've been um, researching for a while, um, I guess the co-ownership and the even buying into it a bit and um, but having an active part in in the group, I guess, um, helps people to, to, well, to begin to change that culture, I suppose, yeah.
1: I think it's it's something about building their confidence in it. Um, so it, it's baby steps. It's getting them to share certain things and then they feel out what they want. We're learning too. I mean, it's not like we've figured it all out and... <laughs> A lot of a lot of the case studies have been and a lot of the stories you hear about have been the disasters. And we don't hear enough about the positive stories and we don't hear enough about the things that are working. So I guess part of what we're trying to do is is make sure that the positive stories are being shared as well as some of the mistakes, you know, and and learning from both the mistakes and the positives. And it's driven right now, there's, there's a compelling call to action because there just isn't enough housing in the area. And also there's an awful lot of elderly people on farms who want to age in place. And one of one of the ways for them to do that is by inviting others to either co-own their farm as a, as a way of um, trying to hold on to the property for another decade
0: Right, and I suppose the idea with that is that there's an income stream for the the retired farmers, I guess. Um, income stream for them to pay the rates and and look after themselves, and and I guess the farmer gets somewhere fairly cheap to farm.
1: Yes, um, if there's enough water, um, you can have multiple things going on on the farm. So one person is um, typically the the older farmer is running beef in this area uh, but the younger farmer coming on might be doing something in horticulture whether it's market gardening or some other more intense um, horticulture and so those two things can fit together if the water is there what we saw before the drought though was there was some cocos happening and as soon as the water was starting to run out the owner of the land would retain the water for their enterprise so let's say they're doing eggs they've got a large poultry thing but there's a market gardener who's co-farming with them but as a renter so as soon as the water runs out the young market gardener gets booted off or rather the tap gets turned off and yeah so what we've learned from that I think is that's not a very great way of growing new um, market gardeners and really what we need is to get vendor supported mortgages happening in that scenario so that the there's more equality in the way that the land is owned and then you're more likely to have something that that that's in it that's going to survive
0: Kevin, I see you've got your hand up there. Yeah,
2: look, I'd like to follow up on that question and also on your previous comment that some of the older people who had done this before have found that there are problems with succession planning. Have you come up with any solutions to that to that problem or have people been making any good suggestions on how to solve that?
1: Well, yes. Um so one of well there's a couple of really interesting things happening where you have a rolling fund or a conservation order um the idea is of a fixed asset and you guys probably know more about this than i do you put a fixed asset order on the land so it doesn't increase in value in terms of capital and basically It is bequeathed so that it can continue in agricultural ownership and therefore means that when people buy in, they're buying in at a lower rate, but they can't sell it at a high rate. So they're basically stepping out of the market and that means it's a rolling fund, effectively. The... Idea of having a share. So, second thing that's happening is people, instead of trying to own it 100%, they start to own 50% or start to sell down shares as new people come in, Um, and that is happening. um, And they're just using tenants in common as the facility to do that, rather than community title, uh, where tenants in common is more frequently used and is easier to navigate and doesn't have as many. you don't have to have a constitution and things like that. So, for small groups where it's one, two, or three people, where somebody owns it 100%, they would sell 50% to another party and then their tenants in common. So, we're seeing that happen.
2: That sounds like a good idea. Can you do that with other assets besides land?
1: I don't know much about that, Kevin. um I, I know that we are doing it with land. So my partner and myself, are we've bought a place with a view to selling half of it, um, and we're currently actively looking for another couple to come in and buy the other half. Um, and there's several other people doing that. I, I don't know whether it can be applied, Tenants in Common, to other assets. I've only seen it used in terms of property.
0: In the whole area of Cabago, when the bushfires came, the whole area was really quite badly devastated. Um, well how did the local farms go by way of keeping up the food supply were they able to do that at that time
1: the area is primarily dairy in terms of bigger cheese mm-hmm. um, there isn't a lot of diversity in what's happening with farming um, yes there's a little bit here and there of market gardening and some more intense producers doing salad greens um, tomatoes things like that but it's one of the things that we, we want to do is, and even bigger Cheese wants to do, is diversify and have, and then there's buzzwords coming in like circular economy and all of that. But in, in terms of being affected in, around Cabago, um, yes, people lost a lot of pasture and, and they lost a lot of livestock. Um, around Cabago itself, a lot of that was beef and dairy were lost Um, but I guess a year out a lot of that has been uh, a lot of that infrastructure and a lot of the livestock has been replaced for for the commercial farmers for the smaller um, market gardeners and others they really were hit hard and um, uh, only a few of them really have come back uh, commercially
0: yeah, that's
2: unfortunate. Um, on the on the water front, so, so during the drought, you ran out of water. I would have thought down the south coast there was a lot of opportunity for um, for developing water systems that would go through a drought. I mean, a little bit of capital goes in to make more water available during drought. Is that possible down there, or is it is that just a a pipe dream. Um,
1: <laughs> no, no pun intended with your pipe dream, Kevin. Um, do you mean with large-scale agriculture, uh, as in? So the dairy farmers went okay with water. It's probably more when you started getting into horticulture that the effect meant that commercial operations shut down, and so, certainly a lot of them small, sort of. Uh, farmer's market scale operators, some of them uh, had to shut up shop because let's say their dam ran dry. Uh, yes, there's opportunities to harvest more water, but I, I think the smaller operators are struggling with the infrastructure spend required to do that.
0: Hmm. It's interesting that um, a localised food production system probably wouldn't have fared very well in that sort of disaster with a massive widespread fire. And I imagine up North things like, uh, cyclones would be the same. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it's when you're supplying into Canberra. So if you're a market gardener in Braidwood and you're supplying into Canberra, you probably have more resilience in one way with that big market. Um, and you can justify the expenditure, um, I think when we're as far as we are from both Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne, you're relying on a little bit of tourism uh, trickling through in the summer months, but you're really trying to build your local demand um, and elbow out the Woolies and the Coles veggie spend. And that, that's a hard game for anyone, but it, it's about building local demand for what we're producing enough that you can then invest in the infrastructure to get yourself a bit more drought proof otherwise right now a lot of us are growing food opportunistically when the water is here we're growing and when it isn't we have to stop
0: i guess uh, if we wound up with a localized system we'd have to have a lot of local everywhere that's communicating with each other so that we could bump up the production in other places to, to fill the shortage in places that have disasters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're so in Cabago Community Garden, which also came out of the fires. The first thing we've done is develop wicking beds um, with the idea that we're surrounded by expert backyard gardeners. So the whole place is Cabago. Everybody grows their own food in their backyard. One of the things we're trying to do is look at um, better ways of getting through the next drought. And so promote, what we're trying to do is promote best of breed backyard gardening. And wicking beds is something that we have developed. We've just uh, put about 10 square meters of of wicking bed in. And what we're trying to do is contrast different types of wicking bed to see which ones work better um, rather than going with any one philosophy. And that's, I guess, with Cabago Seed Savers, uh, which is very active, and others, there's a lot of work trying to look at developing varietals that are going to be drought resilient. At the moment, though, people are just joyful that there's so much water and they can just be growing. So the, um, the attention on the drought has understandably uh, switched off a little bit as, as people opportunistically take advantage of the water and, and just start growing like mad
2: so what's the opportunity with um bigger perhaps they might be looking for local produce for like raspberries or strawberries or something or other to manufacture something or other is that is that a possibility
1: bigger cheese you mean kevin
2: yeah bigger cheese they seem to be into quite a lot of things in the supermarkets <laughs> haven't they bought Vegemite
1: They did. Um, They've got their CEO, whose name I can't remember right now, but he's doing a big push at the moment on circular economy. So they are trying to look at all sorts of ways that their waste products can um, have another life. So, for instance, they have a cardboard box that they use to move product from one side of the factory to the other. I think it, it, it goes into storage and has to be in a box as it goes into cold storage. So we're, we've just bought that at the tool library. Um, it, it turns out that the boxes don't have staples or plastic tape, which means they're very useful in, in um, gardening, whether it's compost or just sort of um, as, a, as a green manure mulch as part of that. So we've been bringing them to Cabago. Um, in, uh, they're kind of half-ton bales and then selling them on to local producers for about 20 bucks. Um, so yeah, that, that kickstarts people going, okay, I might take that and do a more intense, uh, open up new ground, or I'm going to uh, do a uh, rest, a garden and allow a green mulch to come through. There's other products we're gradually starting to look at whether what we can use. I think even, I don't know that it's a great solution, but plastic pallets. Um, so they once they're um, downgraded for use in Bega cheese, they're then available to the community to look at using for, I guess people are, are using them for structure um, in both sheds and things like that. Um, We'll see. It's it's evolving as to whether it's a uh, greenwashing or whether it's real, but certainly they are open to discussion on their waste products. But I'm not seeing them necessarily invest in, I'm not seeing yet them invest in um, other horticulture or market gardening or other things like that. They did talk about it initially, but we're not seeing it yet.
2: Yeah, I wasn't thinking so much of them investing, but in the sense of, uh, I mean, they've got all the the contacts into um, Coles and Woolworths and and all that marketing stuff. They must have that worked out pretty well. Um, It'd be nice to be able to piggyback on top of that.
1: Yeah, they did. Early days they were talking about um, making land available uh, because they do have assets like that and land available close to Bega to try and grow, um, grow the growers kind of thing. So to provide that as a leased market garden, and that would then supply Bega, the town, um, with veggies. So that was interesting because uh, it would create, uh, similar to you guys, I guess, a kind of a food hub. There is a farmer's market, albeit small, already in there, but it, it, for the size of the community, it really could be an awful lot larger. So, if they were, if they got behind that, that would be that would be really useful.
0: So, what sort of scale are the farms that you're looking at?
1: Uh, for cocoa, yes, um, smallish. So, 100 acres, 200 acres would be the kind of size of most of the participants. Um, in terms of owners, um, but then there's a lot of smaller farms. Myself, I'm on a 20-acre farm, um, so there's, there's a lot of demand in that area as well, closer to the village, um, where people aren't looking to take on something like dairy farming, but are looking to take on um, a market garden. And if, if, if you've got a small acreage with good water, then it's quite possible to do that.
0: So you've mentioned water plenty as the main limitation by the sound of it. Are there any
1: other limitations
0: on on farming around that area?
1: Well, we we have different kinds of soil. So um, there's some great basalt soils bred around, uh, but mostly it's decomposed granite. Um, So yeah, just getting the good soils, the, the right place, right aspect, sort of looking in terms of climate change in terms of whether uh, you know the different slopes people are changing where they're choosing to put gardens so the wind is probably the biggest thing that's affecting us now um, is wind and so choosing people you can see people choosing different slopes where previously it was optimal for because it was north facing or northeast facing now choosing different place because it's got wind shelter
0: yeah that's interesting what about employment in the area do you reckon that if this really got going it would start building the employment sort of figures
1: um yes i mean we're very keen we're very conscious of our demographics so it's an uh, an older population and a lot of retirees coming from the big cities so where it's getting older I guess and what we want to do is encourage younger people to come to the area and um, children sons and daughters of people who already live here to stay the tool library we're hoping has a role to play in that so we got funding um, from the bushfire recovery funds of $135,000, which we're um, spending at the moment and the idea the ideas coming through for that are what we call resilience trailers, and each trailer could be um, about $40,000. It's a fully equipped trailer, and the idea is you don't have to spend a lot to hire it. It's a low hire, so we could have a horticulture trailer that has maybe cherry pickers or has um, walk-behind tractors, so young market gardener who doesn't have a lot of cash could borrow that for not a lot to establish a new garden or seasonally at harvest time, borrow it um, to get labor, a lot of labour-saving equipment. Once they're up and running, the last thing they want to do is go to a tool library. Um, but when they're establishing, the tool library can have a role to play um, so that they can experiment, innovate, try a business idea and get up and running. It was Aid, who you may have heard of, um, that put the idea in our heads because they have a fencing trailer that they use. And so we decided to provide four fit trailers to the community to promote young people um, getting involved in some enterprise to kickstart them, if you like. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, building trailer is one of the ones coming through as most popular at the moment. That obviously there's a lot of building going on, but new people getting into it or owner builders doing their own thing, and so a building trailer is helping people uh, get that work happening faster.
2: So Coco itself is how many do you have members and so forth? Is it
1: we've we've got 400 members on um, Facebook. Uh, of interested parties because there was a group that predated us um, that was interested in co-housing and co-farming and things like that. We probably have about 200 people that have turned up to our events in the last year. And then there's about 20 people that are actively involved, which I call the brains trust, but people who are um, very much thinking about how we can evolve the process by which people come together and and facilitating or hosting a way of hosting the conversation so that people go into it eyes open but we don't scare the hell out of them either
2: so so how are you organized i mean have you registered as a cooperative
1: well not yet no we've been very wary of burdening ourselves with um even becoming incorporated um or applying for grants so unlike the tool library and the community garden, we have stayed as a gathering on purpose until we need funding. And at the moment we haven't needed funding because it's an intellectual thing. It's a human thing. It's hosting a gathering is, didn't require us to have insurance or to have um, a grant to support us. And the skill sets we've needed, we've really just gotten from people offering their skills, whether they were legal skills or planning skills. I think going forward, we will incorporate and we will apply for grants so that we can run workshops and hire some expertise in, Um, but we're not gonna cross that bridge just yet. I think another year of evolving a basic how-to kit,
0: before we take it up a level. So there's been plenty of talk and increasing talk, uh, I guess in the last few years, particularly on regenerative agriculture and and just the methods on which uh, we produce our food, which I guess in regenerative agriculture, they're basically talking about soil building. Um, Are are you guys particularly keen on any particular method or, or, any particular sort of function Um, of farming other than just producing the food?
1: Look, uh, we're amateurs on that one. We're certainly, people are quite aware of Peter Andrews and um, what's happening around Canberra and Braidwood in terms of regenerative agriculture. But it's, I, I don't think cocoa itself is, attached to any particular philosophy so there'll be people into biodynamics and permaculture and regenerative farming and holistic land management and all of those philosophies we're certainly we're trying to stay open to all and be a broad church because a lot of our um, farmers who just want to age in place they won't necessarily be signed up to any one of those philosophies and I guess we want to, to to keep as many people in as possible, and some of them may be pure commercially commercial dairy farmers. Regenerative farming is in the mix, but we're not uh, we're not being exclusive about it or excluding people because they're not into regenerative farming as such. But I'm, I'm not an expert in it, so I can't, uh, I can't say that we're leading, leading the conversation that way. But people that turn up to Cocoa are probably more typically on the organic side of things, just in their nature.
0: Yep, yep. I can see how that would make sense. Uh, so what about seed saving and sharing seeds and that sort of thing? Have you thought of that one or down the track oh, maybe?
1: Uh, it's huge down this neck of the woods. So big seed savers, Cabago seed savers are huge in terms of the numbers of people involved and what they're doing. And like I said earlier, yeah, they're, they're quite active in developing, um, trying to develop varietals that are going to be more um, drought resilient um, and noticing what's happening with climate um, and trying to get ahead of the game on that wind resilience. Um, mm. like we said earlier, is the, the, an area that they're looking at as well. So, yeah, those, those groups are quite sophisticated, I think. I'm not directly involved, um, but very interested in what they're doing and what they're coming up with. Um, they're certainly uh, doing a lot at the moment.
2: So what's the, uh, what's the sort of land care type people? Are they active? they would be active
1: down there, I guess. Um, Yeah. And I mean, a lot of it right now is about the, uh, weed regrowth, the type of weed regrowth and the type of, uh, land management required after the fire, after the fires. Um, everybody is in the middle of that. Everybody is engaged with that. Everybody is uh, who has land is trying to figure out what to do. Um, it's very challenging at the moment with weeds so fireweed for instance is huge compared to last year um and that's very challenging for the dairy farmers not so much for horticulture but yeah very challenging for dairy
2: and what about the timber industry is that
1: well it's It's not a big one and and it's very challenging at the moment because there is no timber for for fencing, even for fencing, let alone dwellings, we're having to import for for building materials at the moment. You can't even get treated pine, let alone local hardwood. Um, It's a conversation that hasn't started properly in terms of tree planting and what kind of forestry is going to be happening um, going forward. Not really hearing a lot of people do more than talk about it. Um, nobody's really thinking about uh, plantations that I've heard of, other than orchards, but but nothing at scale.
0: Yeah, well, I guess you'd be a bit frightened to put in a huge investment into forest when you've just seen the whole forest go up in flames.
1: Yeah. Now, there's, there's a, a lot of people are quite depressed uh, when they talk about the. The forest, the state forest, or even looking at it. Um, uh, people don't like so much talking uh, about what's lost. Um, it, it, it brings them down a little bit, so it's it's almost a, a subject it's kind of avoided, looking at the, the skyline, because the trees are starting to fall now. The ones that haven't survived the fire, it's around now that they're starting to fall over, so the, the profile or the silhouette as in the sunset is starting to sort of thin out day by day. Um, so yeah, (laughs) it's, Mm. it's not really, uh, it'll get there though. I I think the conversation has to turn eventually to, um, what's going to happen in terms of regrowth and, and tree plantation. Um, I think it's, it, it, it's yet to happen though
0: i'm pretty much out of questions has anyone else got any uh, further questions probably take that as a no i'd say is there anything else that you'd like to add monica before we wind up
1: no um just uh yeah very interested in what you guys are doing as well and uh, and learning if if you guys happen to um have any insights on with regard to cocoa, um on people co-owning property um, and different ways on how they might come together to negotiate agreements, um, would love to share um, and learn um, from. If you guys have have exposure to that,
0: yes. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be dabbling in that space quite soon. Yeah. Um, so we're creating a, a cooperative farming organisation which will be owned by the the farmers and the people who are eating the food. And yeah, we have some quite similar ideas on succession and how to get hold of land, except that we'll be putting in collectively to buy the, the farmland and have the cooperative own it. And then farmer members of the co op can then lease that land with confidence that they're pretty secure in it. Uh,
1: one of our members, Lib, is an expert in co op law. So um'll nice. I'll, mm. I'll, I'll put her in touch with you guys um, and you know, uh, maybe she can throw in as well, but it sounds like a very exciting project. so yeah, I'd love to hear more about that co-op structure because if that's made easier to do, if the hurdles to setting it up are <laughs> a little bit easier to navigate, then more people will do it um, which sounds like. A really sensible way I mean the the key thing for us in in terms of multiple people getting onto the land is it's really hard work and having even another couple for instance on our farm um just means we might get a holiday you know that we could (laughs) go away for a weekend and and look after their side of things so um yeah it's just it's just very pragmatic
0: yep keep the seedlings watered feed the chooks just the simple things that keep you at home
1: yeah
2: so do you, do you publish meetings and things of that nature?
1: Yeah. Um, yes, we do. And I'll keep you guys in touch. And, and yeah, please come down for uh, it's not that far and uh, throw in. It would be good to connect. Um, and as your co-op evolves, it would be, be great to have you come and talk about what you guys are doing as a little case study and your learnings on the collaboration.
0: Yeah, we'd be really happy to. Yeah, yep. We're just That'd developing cool. a, a bit of a patter at the moment, so we could try you fairly soon by Zoom or something if you want.
1: You can use us as a guinea pig.
0: <laughs> that's right. All right, so if anyone who's listening to the recording of this would like to uh, get in touch, how would they do that?
1: Well, I guess for now, because we haven't incorporated, we haven't set up websites and all of that, uh, that's probably about a year away. Uh, For now, it's just a personal contact. So through Scotty, uh, get in touch with myself.
0: Well, unless anyone's come up with a question, we'll wind it up there. Thank you. No worries. Thanks a lot. Monica Considine from the Coco Cabago Group. Thanks, Monica.
2: Thanks, Thanks. Scotty.
0: Okay. We'll see you all later. Okay. Bye, bye. everyone. Bye. 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 You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra (Co-Canberra for short), the New Economy Network of Australia, or NENA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see doublexfm.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at co-canberra.org.au. That's c o c a n b e r r a.org.au. org or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocambra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full time with this and lots of other related work, look up Libera Pay, Liberapay, L I B E R A P A Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.